0: Good morning. Good morning. Morning, Rio Vista Community Church. Great to be with you all this morning in the house of the Lord. How many of you all are happy to be here? Oh, oh, God. oh I can preach now. I am so, so happy to be here. And if it's your first time here, welcome. If it's uh, your 99th time here or if you've been only here for a week, uh, we want to welcome you back to this family. Grateful to be here in the house of the Lord and I hope everybody got a play sheet when you came in this morning. If you did, you'll see three things on there that we want you to focus on in the life at Rio. Explore, discover, and grow. Explore, discover, and grow. And the way that we explore, a way that we provide opportunities for exploration of the Christian faith, a way to ask questions uh, about the big things in life. You know, where do we, why are we here? Uh, what is Christianity anyway? If you're skeptical, skeptical about Christianity, if you're uh, not sure that it's for you, or if you have friends that are like that, we want to invite you to Alpha. Alpha, we will uh, start on September 11th. And it will be on Thursday nights up in the attic. It's a wonderful opportunity to have a conversation in a non-judgmental atmosphere with people who will talk to you about the gospel. But we'll do it in a way to where you can we'll listen. We'll listen. And we don't do enough of that. So I really want to give God thanks for Alpha. I found it to be a wonder wonderful thing for me, and I think it's going to be a wonderful thing for those uh, of you who have friends or those of you who are here who have questions about the Christian faith. So that's explore. In Discover, we have what's called starting point. And uh, you can join us for coffee in the Ingram Center. It's right upstairs here to learn more about life at Rio. Uh, we'll talk about our mission, our vision. We'll talk about what we do here at Rio and what it means to be a part of the community here. And the next meet and greet is August 25th in between the services, so right after the first service. And then there is Grow. And on Wednesday nights, we have... Uh, spiritual formation. Pastor Sam Caston-Smith talks about the series or this uh, right now we're in this series on spiritual disciplines. So I want to encourage each and every one of you to come out on Wednesday nights. Uh, Pastor Sam is a wonderful Bible teacher. I've learned so much from him and we would like to invite every one of you to come out to learn more and continue to grow spiritually. And then finally, our feature of the week next Sunday is going to be promotion Sunday. So we have a number of children that are moving up in their grade level, and uh, we really want to celebrate them next week. So come prepared for that. And over the past uh, few weeks, we've been preaching through a series called The Voice of Reason, Timeless Wisdom from the Proverbs. What we're doing is going to the Bible, the Word of God, to hear God's voice, to receive God's wisdom about some pretty important topics in life, such as uh, business ethics, parenting, justice and mercy, our rhythms of work and rest, or as we talked about last week with Pastor Matt, our appetites. And the way I would frame the question that we keep returning to is this. How does our default approach to life compare to how God, our creator, says we ought to approach life or, or live life? How does the wisdom of this world compare to the wisdom of God. And I say our default approach to life because for many of us, the way that we approach our work, our life, our, our play, the entertainment we enjoy, how we manage our relationships, all of these areas in our lives have been impacted in some pretty significant ways by people and systems that are not receiving their wisdom from God. And if we're going to receive wisdom from the word of God, we've got to be real intentional about it, don't we? Even if you were raised in a family of Christians, if we're not orienting our lives so that we consistently receive God's wisdom, we have a tendency to flow along with what everyone else is doing. And maybe maybe not in everything, but in many things. And we may begin to believe that this is this is the best that we can do. The word of God, the wisdom of God, offers hope for all of us that there is a God-honoring way to approach life that takes into account what we're created for and how to live our lives according to God's purpose. And today, my assignment is to help us to think about, to explore what wisdom God offers us in his word In navigating what seems normal, what seems default, what just seems like, well, this is pretty much how it is and how it always will be. And that's a culture of division, a culture of partisanship, a culture of tribalism. We normally connect the word tribe to the way that we've described um, certain people groups or certain cultures, but in modern parlance, Seth Godin defines a tribe as simply a group of people connected to one another, connected to a leader, connected to an idea. Tribalism, however... Moves beyond that to refer to, as one pastor stated it, a group attitude of undeserved pride and superiority based solely on identification with the group. It is the tendency to look down on other people for no other reason than that they don't belong to the group. And if we're honest, I don't think there is anyone in this room who has not been affected by this attitude. We're not immune from this attitude. We've been infected by this attitude we see tribalism in all levels of our existence everywhere in humanity it can be in the simple almost silly ways that we identify ourselves based on our loyalties are you android or iphone okay are you pc or macbook starbucks or dunkin donuts here's a real important one mayonnaise or miracle whip LeBron or MJ. But our tribalistic tendencies are also displayed in ways that have serious implications for how we define ourselves. For what we may consider to be our primary identity, to whom we pledge our allegiance, what shapes how we think and how we respond to others. In politics, Democrat or Republican. Libertarian or green? And believe me, I'm not speaking about politics today. Um, Pastor Tom preached a great message on politics in our 21 questions series. If you haven't heard it, I want to encourage you to download our app, to watch it or listen to it or go to our website. You need to hear it. But what are the, are other, some other ways in which we may identify ourselves in our national identities, American or Russian, Japanese or Korean? Uh, And tribalism certainly occurs in how we think of ourselves racially, black or white, American Indian uh, or Native American or Asian, or how we think of ourselves culturally. Now, can we imagine life without these categories? Can we imagine ourselves without these identities? In the early church, the distinctions that mattered most were Jew and Gentile. The Jewish people were, as we might say, the original children of God, the covenant people of God, the special ones on the earth, the nation that God chose to set his love on them and make them his own. Even though they were not particularly numerous, they weren't militarily strong, they weren't politically connected throughout the world. And then Jesus came as a Jew. And those Jews that followed Jesus saw this as a continuation of what had always Been They were the special chosen people of God. So it's no wonder that God came and incarnated himself as one of them. And even though they saw the signs that Gentiles would be included in this new church, they were still the special people of God. And for some of them, they were certainly more special than the Gentiles. The Apostle Paul described their heritage this way in Romans 9, 4. He said, they are the Israelites and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship and the promises to them belong. The patriarchs and from their race, according to the flesh is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. What a heritage. And none of these were bad things. Being adopted by God is obviously great. Seeing the glory of God as a pillar of fire or as lightning and thunderings and earthquakes on Mount Sinai. Or the glory of God filling the temple where God's presence lived. All of that was great. Having the law was great. Knowing the character of God through the law. Knowing how to worship him properly. Beautiful. But as far as some of the Jewish Christians were concerned, the Gentiles had some catching up to do. If they could catch up at all in understanding what it meant to be a follower of Jesus, because for so many of the Jews, being a follower of Jesus meant you needed to become a Jew first. And in that way, they considered their tribe as Jews to be superior to the Gentiles. Because the Gentiles were not coming from a history where they could say they were the chosen people of God. They didn't grow up learning that Abraham was their father. They didn't grow up learning about the law that Moses gave to them that came straight from the finger of God on Mount Sinai. There were no prophets or patriarchs connected to the one true God in their history. And I I want to read to you a passage in Ephesians 2 where Paul the Apostle is, is writing to a church in Ephesus. And in Ephesus, instead of a temple where the presence of God Lived The Ephesians' most prominent civic monument was the temple of the false god Diana. Gentiles didn't grow up on a restricted diet, eating only those things that were considered clean by the law. They weren't raised with the same moral ethics. They didn't learn the Torah in their private schools. Their politics were different. They were used to treating their political leaders as gods. But the gospel came to Ephesus. And in the churches that now gathered there and in the surrounding communities, there were both Jews and Gentiles gathering together, worshiping together. And they weren't used to worshiping together, much less doing life together. Just because they had accepted Jesus as their Lord and Savior and were following him didn't mean they were comfortable with each other. Many of the Jews thought they were superior because the lifestyle they grew up with easily made them look holier than the Gentile brothers and sisters. And the Gentiles found that their political views, their social lives, their entertainment choices were all different from what the Jews were normally comfortable with. And they probably had a hard time hanging with, from their perspective, these arrogant, proud, and uncompassionate Jews. So Paul is writing to both of these groups in his letter to the Ephesians. And in Ephesians 2, starting in verse 11, he addresses the Gentiles And he offers them tremendous hope. And the hope that he offers here, the hope he offers here should cause us to pause and to reflect about the vision that God has for us, his church. It's so much different from what the Jews and the Gentiles had in mind. Many of them were probably convinced that they would have to figure out a way to just coexist as separate tribes. But listen to God's vision for his church. This is what Paul writes. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off, you Gentiles, and peace to those who were near, you Jews. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built, built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. What a vision. One new man. Or as some versions have it, one new humanity. And as we sit in this church today, there's no denying that we have differences. One another. A function of being human, thankfully, is that we are distinct from one another. We've got different backgrounds, different philosophies, different cultures, different perspectives, different hairstyles. We like different music, different foods, uh, different clothes, different shoes. We're different. And yet we find things we have in common. And it's great. Some of you like sailing and you enjoy talking about sailing. And reading about sailing and going to sailing conferences and buying sailing clothes. And some of you are that way with sports, with cooking, with volunteering your time to help others or your business ideas or your company. It's great to have things in common, great to discuss them, great to bond over them. And even with our distinct differences, many of us have experienced the joy of knowing that the thing that we have in common with some others is, is weighted far greater than the things that make us different from one another. But for many of us, it's those things that we have in common, good things that we have in common, that we tend to make ultimate things. They become the primary identifier of who we are. And if that's the case, when we join together with folks that we have common interests or activities, we find that we may become very suspicious or at the very least uncomfortable with those who don't share our views or look like us or act like us. And for those of us who are believers in Jesus, this is how tribalism works against The vision that God has for his church, this vision of one new humanity centered around the worship of Jesus, a vision for how we love one another as a body of Christ and how we love those in the world. Quite simply, in Matthew uh, chapter 22, verse 37 through 40, Jesus said it like this, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and a second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and prophets. In other words, everything hangs on loving God and loving our neighbor. And we can do this because of the gospel, because of the good news of how Jesus loved us and sacrificed his life for us, even when we were aligned against him in our human tribe. God's word gives us his wisdom to show us how to do this. So I want to just look at some passages in God's word and just two statements about this idea of tribalism in comparison to the wisdom of God. And first of all, we will notice that God's wisdom calls us to love our enemies. But tribalism makes this difficult, if not impossible. Remember, we're narrowly but I think accurately defining tribalism as a group attitude of superiority based solely on identification with a group with a tendency to look down on other people for no other reason than that they don't belong to that group. And, and, and sometimes to increase our feeling of superiority, we exclude people from the group and we go to the extent to discredit or destroy what we consider to be the group's enemies. So, first text, here's what God's wisdom tells us in the book of Romans, chapter 12. Sobering. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil. To the contrary, and Paul, the author of this letter, he's quoting from the book of Hebrews here. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. You got that visual? Heap burning coals on his head. Now, the best meaning I've read for this saying is that basically you'll be subduing your enemy with the most effective means possible. What a picture. But in context here, what it means is that you're killing your enemy with kindness. Verse 21, do not over, be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The story is told of, of a speech made by Abraham Lincoln during the bloody Civil War. And in the speech, he referred to the Southerners fighting against the Union. He referred to them as fellow human beings whom he believed to be an error. And an elderly woman who was also in the union uh, came and criticized him to his face. She criticized him because he didn't call them irreconcilable enemies who must be destroyed. And Lincoln replied to her, why, madam? Do I not destroy my enemies when I make them my friends? Look, even when we have legitimate reasons for being drawn to the groups that we're a part of like beliefs or common goal, common vision for the nation. There's a great difference between opposing another group's ideas and working to destroy their character. In the kingdom of God where Jesus reigns, we have to take seriously the fact that he is in control. And if there is to be any vengeance, it is up to him to execute it. And now to make sure we get this right, notice that this text assumes that we do have enemies. Paul uh, Paul assumes there's disagreement, to put it lightly, and, and we may have some folks coming at us for various issues. But as children of God, what we are responsible for is a God-honoring response. As much as it depends on you, live peaceably with everybody. And the extent to which you can do that varies, I know. But but living peaceably with everybody is the goal. And if your ideological or theological or philosophical enemy is hungry or thirsty or in need of a friend, I want you to know that the presence of God can meet them through you. As you destroy an enemy by making a friend. What would happen in our families? with spouses, with our children, in our communities, in our churches, in our country, if those who are the followers of Jesus Christ would see it as their mandate to serve their enemies peaceably, humbly, patiently. We're talking about the political enemies you see as dangerous. Talking about the theological enemies you see as heretical. Maybe me talking about that family at school that just seems to be competing with you every step of the way and you just find them flat out annoying. What would happen if, as verse 17 says, we did not spend our time trying to see how we could best repay evil for evil that's been done to us. But maybe we could spend our time having meetings and conferences on how we can do what is honorable. Or honoring to those who oppose our ideas in a way that the world sees and takes notice. What might that look like? What's the end goal? It's to escape the tribalistic mindset by God's grace and make an enemy a friend so that I could introduce them to a friend of mine who loved me and who lived for me and who died for me and adopted me and he made me his friend when i was his enemy god's wisdom calls us to love our enemies tribalism makes that difficult if not impossible but point number two god's wisdom calls us to be shaped by his word and tribalism can shape us in ways that contradict the gospel It's a very challenging question. It might be difficult to answer, honestly. You might need some help from a neighbor or a friend um, or a family member to answer this. You might need to phone a friend. Anybody remember that? All right, so what has more influence on your thinking? Is it the real Vista Community Church app, personal worship that you go through every day? Or is it social media? Is it the Beyond the Water podcast featuring our fearless Bible teacher, Pastor Sam and Mark and Drew? Or is it cable television? Media is a major influencer today, isn't it? Listen, it's not a conspiracy theory. It's not hearsay. There are algorithms. There are millions of dollars that are being spent, monster software and analytical companies. Media is just being curated just for you. It's being delivered right to your smartphone or your smartwatch, especially if you spend a significant amount of time on social media. And we can probably tell what we have allowed to influence us by our Instagram feed or our Twitter feed, or if you're old school, by the cable television channels that you find yourself drawn to. Friends, can we just agree that it affects us? We talked about appetites last week, and if I open my pantry or my refrigerator, or I make a list of all the things that I ate last week at Taco Bell or Jersey Mike's, uh, you might, you might be able to understand why my belly fat won't go away. (laughs) Because as we heard last week, our appetites shape us based on the things that we consume. And friends, we were created to consume knowledge. To learn, we were created to be influenced, but not primarily by social media influencers. We were created to be influenced by our Creator, and God wants to influence us, shape us, sanctify us, so that we might be a blessing to the world through the wisdom of His Word. But tribalism can shape us in ways that ruin our witness to Christ and even our own understanding of the Gospel, and we can be subtly moved into a tribalistic culture if we 're not extremely diligent. Staff here at, at Rio have been doing personal worship together and reading through a book together called "The Common Rule: Habits for Habits of Purpose for an Age of Dist- Distraction." it's written by Justin Early, and it 's convicting and encouraging at the same time. Trust me, it's um, well worth. The time and effort to go through this book, and in it, early shares eight habits, four weekly habits and four daily habits, eight habits that we would do well to form in order for us to experience the freedom that God gives us in a word, in His word, in an age where there are so many distractions and attractions to a tribalistic culture. And ironically, that freedom can only come when we live it our exposure to the distractions presented to us, freedom through limitations. And daily habit number four is cultivating the habit of not checking our phone first thing when we wake up, not before we read a passage of scripture. Early say it's a way of replacing the question that says, what do I need to do today? With the better question, who am I and who am I becoming? Why? Listen to this, because he says we have no stable identity outside of Jesus. Daily immersion in the scriptures resists the anxiety of emails, the anger of news and the envy of social media. Instead, it forms us daily in our true identity as children of the king, dearly loved. Isn't that good? Daily immersion in the scriptures, daily obedience to God's word, both education and formation is an antidote to the lore of tribalism. But it's not easy. It requires, as we've mentioned, intentionality. Look with me at Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 through 8. In the, the New International Version, it says this, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, nothing. By taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Friends, this is the good news of the gospel. Jesus, who is God, became one of us. His creation that rejected him, and we consistently sinned against him. Uh, We violated his holiness to the point where we could not even be in his presence. Yet he came. He humbled himself to his enemies to make them not just his friends, but his family, his brothers and sisters, so that we could become the sons and daughters of God with the expectant hope of living together for all eternity with our Father, our Lord, the Holy Spirit, and each other together. And think about this humbling that he experienced. Theologians call it his condescension to us. Can you even begin to imagine What that must have been like. We're to notice here in the scripture what God has done. And Paul, the author of of this letter to the Philippian church, he says that we need to have the same mindset that the Son of God had. He didn't hesitate to come down to where we were. He came down, it said in Galatians, in the fullness of time, and he came down for the sole purpose of saving us and making us like him. Second Corinthians five, it says that God through Christ reconciled us to himself, reconciled. He removed any hostilities in order to make us friends. That same scripture says he reconciled us. Why? To give us the ministry of reconciliation. We're to do the same thing. We're supposed to reconcile ourselves to others. By ourselves, we don't have the strength to do this. By ourselves, we, we can become more comfortable with grouping ourselves with those who are similar to us or gathered to a particular cause. And we can become numb to the way that we demonize others instead of stepping into that hard work of reconciliation. But God gives us the strength to do this through his spirit because of the gospel. So if you believe the gospel... We adopt the mind of Christ. We pray and ask the Holy Spirit to help us so that we're not sucked into the groupthink that is inherent in tribalism rather than having the mind of Christ. We need the mind of Christ, not the mind of the group or the group leader or the agenda because our minds are finite. We lack all the perspectives that we need. And and multiple perspectives would certainly help us make better decisions. If we had all the perspectives including the eternal perspectives, we could probably make decisions like God, right? But we can't have God's knowledge except through his word. And God doesn't give us all the perspectives on all of the issues like that. But he does tell us to love one another, to be patient with one another, to humble ourselves and pray for one another. And so because we lack perspective, we can't be committed to this idea of superiority of our group above anyone else. Because that attitude of superiority is antithetical to the gospel. It's antithetical to love for our neighbor. I can't believe that my group is superior to you and love you at the same time. The idea of superiority is, is, is dehumanizing because it denies that The one we consider as beneath us was made in the image of God in the same way we were. And it's much easier to gossip, to backbite, to belittle, to discount, and even discard someone when we've dehumanized them because we believe our perspective, our ideas, our culture is superior. The gospel calls us to love our neighbor in a way that causes us to repent of our superiority, superiority, Repent of our tribalism. Repent of our pride as we seek to love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, strength. I just want to read one more quote to you from the book, The Common Rule. It really convicted me about the ways that I could be attracted to a tribalistic mindset by what I ingested on the internet and on social media. And he's talking again about scripture before phone first thing in the morning. Listen to this. The questions of whether we let pundits or prophets... Calibrate Our morning identity is an urgent matter of neighbor love. So long as we look to the news for our identity, we won't respond to the information with genuine care and concern for our neighbor. We'll respond by being indignant, which is a feeling alleviated by aligning ourselves with a tribe against a perceived wrong. All you have to do is pick a side and conveniently that requires no repentance, but aligning our identity to the king over the country is radically different. Only when we're secure in our identity as children of the coming king who will right all wrongs can we read the news for the sake of our neighbor's needs instead of for the sake of our own inadequacy. Only then are we able to repent and not just blame the other side. It's pretty convict. So here's a vision. One new humanity. Can you see it? Can you imagine it? The end of Ephesians chapter two, nineteen. he's speaking to the Gentiles again. You're no longer strangers and aliens. You're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Paul, in conclusion, describes the church as a building where Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. He's the foundation stone to which everything in the construction of the building is aligned so that the building is stable and firm. It's only one cornerstone, friends. So that every believer in Jesus Christ from every nation, from every people group, every language, in every governmental system, in every economic system, in every culture, whatever your philosophy or ideology, it has to first align to Jesus, the cornerstone. And so we pray for the new heavens and the new earth, the restoration of this entire universe until the earth is filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea when there will be no more tribes, no more dissensions, no more tears, no more violence, no more death. But right now, each one of us who are believers in Jesus, we're part of that building. Bible calls us living stones and we're joined together and we're growing into a holy temple in the Lord. Together, we are the dwelling place for God. And as we go into the world, God's spirit is there with us. So as the song we sang this morning, the atmosphere can change. Because the spirit of the Lord is here. Minds can change. Hearts can be turned to God in repentance and faith. So we're not separate tribes. So we can't live as if we are. Jesus has made us one. Let's pray. Lord, as we enter this uh, time of reflection, Mason's going to lead us through. I want you to speak to us. Our hearts may be resistant to what we've heard today. We need your spirit to help us to desire what you desire for us. Speak, O Lord. Renew our minds. Help us grasp the heights of your plans for us. Speak, O Lord, till your church is built and the earth is filled with your glory. Amen.